chapter 7. We're going to start in chapter 7 and verse 1. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. Okay, I'm going to pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday that we can gather with our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. And we can open the scriptures to encourage one another and to seek the truth and apply the truth and proclaim the truth. And Lord, we pray that you'd be with us this morning. And we do pray for those who listen from afar, who join us over the internet. We pray for their blessing and well-being as well. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to go back over what I said last week because I don't know if everyone was here. We're going to have a new procedure Here's the deal. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about prophesying. It says here, The one who prophesies speaks to men for their edification, exhortation, and consolation. And we follow a belief that we've written about that prophecy is bringing out this exhortation and edification and so on is bringing out valid implications and applications of Scripture. And according to the Scripture, that's something that we can all do. It says in 1 Corinthians 14:31, you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be exhorted. Elsewhere it says, let the prophets speak by two or the most three. So a prophet here is not like Elijah, is simply a member of the congregation applying the Scripture unto edification, exhortation, and comfort. So, in order to practice this properly, the way we're going to proceed, which is different from what we used to do, is that I'm going to expound a verse of Scripture and bring out the meaning of the Scripture as I see it, according to the research and the Greek and everything we do, so that we understand the verse. And then we're going to look up the cross-references. And then after that, we can do that other part. Then we can discuss the verse. But our discussion, we want to be focused on applications and implications of the verse we're studying. And we're going to do that through several verses each Sunday, so we make progress through the Scriptures. And then... If we want to open up a discussion on a topic, it'll be after we've done that. Okay, and last week we did that. Last week, after we expounded the Scripture, we talked about green Christianity. Remember that? So we we may do that, something like that. Because there are topics of the day that we might want to discuss, but not until after the Scripture. So hold your discussion until after we have covered a verse. And the first one that we're going to cover today is 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. I'm going to read the verse and then bring out some of the uh, grammatical issues from the Greek, make sure we understand it, and we'll look up some cross-references, and then we'll discuss it. It says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, in the fear of God. Now, what are these promises? Well, the context indicates this would be 1 Corinthians 6 would be our context for this. The context indicates that a promise was come out from among them and be separate 
And the promise part was, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be a father to you and you will be sons and daughters to me. So the promise to the church was that God would be a father to us. He would be our God and we would uniquely be his people because he has saved us out of the world and drawn us into relationship with himself. And then we'll be sons and daughters of the Most High. And we discussed that in the last couple of weeks. So that's the promises. Then it says, let us, notice the plural there, beloved, let us. So it's dressing the church as beloved of God. We, the church, should cleanse ourselves from all defilement. Now the term cleanse there in the Greek is katharizo. And... It's in the aorist active subjunctive. A subjunctive mood means that there's certain uncertainty, but that's why it's translated let us. In other words, it's not certain that, it's, that we've already done this, but it's something that we ought to do. That's the point of the subjunctive mood. Catharizo is a word from which we get our English word catharsis. Catharsis. Catharizo probably here is Old Testament language of purification. And in the Old Testament, this was used to discuss not touching what was unclean. Now, in the Old Testament, the unclean was what was ceremonially unclean, something like a dead body or a leper or anything that would create this state of ceremonial uncleanliness that required the Old Testament Hebrews to go through a process a purification before they could come into worship. Okay, so that's what it, that's what that meant there. But here, the application of this katharizo is in the context, in the context, separation from the temple cults of Corinth. It's very clear as we have looked extensively at First uh, Corinthians and Second Corinthians and all of the things that Paul has been contending with them about, that the issue that was on the table was participating in cultic activities that were associated with idolatry. And these activities even included immorality. Okay? So they were uh, defiled, in a sense. If they go to the pagan meals that are offered to idols if they go to the temple functions, or even possibly work-related. I'm not so sure about Greece, but I do know in Asia Minor that they had trade guilds that if you belonged to a certain trade and you were, and you were in one of those guilds, you were expected to do sacrifices to various gods that these things were committed to. In Revelation, when he talks to the churches, and a couple of them that were faithful, he said that they had poverty. Possibly, scholars think that the reason for poverty among some early Christians was the fact that they had to actually give up their job because their job required idolatry that they couldn't, in good conscience, partake in. And so that creates a state of poverty because if you were in a lucrative guild, you know... um, and the guild was committed to Isis or some wicked goddess, in, in there was, or there was immorality involved with it, you had to quit. So there, therefore, that may be cause of poverty. Now, I'm not sure that applies to the situation in Greece, 
But it wouldn't be a bit surprising that the same sort of thing was going on there. So this meant uh, separating from temple cults and immorality. So that's how we cleanse ourselves from all defilement. The word defilement is only used here in the New Testament. It's not used in any other New Testament verse. It's used three times in the Septuagint, one of which is Jeremiah 23.15. So, uh, Robert, do you want to look up Jeremiah 23.15? And it's uh, molusmas, and it's a state of religious or moral defilement. A state of religious or moral defilement. And again, would probably mean if you go down to these cults and partake in a pagan meal, you're in this state of defilement. If you commit acts of immorality, particularly which some were associated with goddesses and temple cults, you are defiled, and you need to cleanse yourself from such things. Okay, Jeremiah 23:15. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets: Behold, I will feed them with wormwood and make them drink the water of gall. For from the prophets of Jerusalem. Profaneness has gone out into all the land. Profaneness is the word there. Yeah, uh, do you have a comment on that? <laughs> Directly related? Well, just the next verse, it goes on. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They are speaking a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. So okay. their own imagination is where their profaneness is coming okay. from. Now... The profaneness comes from something that's not from God. And in the case of the false prophets of, that Jeremiah is dealing with, is that the false prophets were telling them that they, could, that they weren't going to be judged for their idolatry. The true prophet, Jeremiah, said that because you've committed idolatry over and over again, God is going to bring the Babylonians in, and the Babylonians are going to take you captive, and that's just the way it is. And what God wants you to do is when you get to Babylon, work for the welfare of the country where you live. But you will go there, and then I'll bring you back out after 70 years. And the false prophets said it's not going to happen because the false prophets didn't believe God was going to judge idolatry. And so that's why the words of the false prophet was considered defilement. Then it says defilement of flesh and spirit. Probably what it means here is one's whole being, the whole of one's being, defilement of flesh and spirit. I've used this verse to refute the, the doctrine of anatomical sanctification. And that particular doctrine was made popular by Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee taught anatomical sanctification. And his scheme was that when a person was joined to the Lord, their spirit becomes purified because we're joined to God's spirit. The soul is sort of an arbiter between the spirit and the flesh. And the flesh is oriented toward the outward world, so therefore the, the flesh is the defilement. And sanctification would be your soul listening to your spirit rather than going through the body to the outside world and thus being defiled. And so Washman Nee wrote a series of books that taught this doctrine of anatomical 
sanctification that I used to believe. And it caused me much misery and sorrow in my life when I believed that. And to this day, people read these false doctrine Washman e-books because they think that they're pious. Now, when I finally realized the error of that, and it leads people into asceticism because they think the body is the big problem. Okay? But when I looked at this verse, it says, defilement of flesh and spirit. The spirit, the whole person is defiled by sin, not just part of our anatomy. And we don't have to divide humans up into component parts and analyze the, the, the component parts in order to determine how sanctification works. The whole person needs to be sanctified, and God is working with our whole person, and we're not even able to consciously, if we are tripartite, which even that is not universally uh, believed by scholars, there, there are dichotomous and trichotomous, but I don't even want to debate that one. Even if we are tripartite, we can't sit here and say, okay, my soul's doing this, my body's going over here, my spirit's doing this. We're not even conscious of these things, much less able to use them for, for sanctification. What, what Paul is probably addressing is that this defilement from the temple cultus involved the whole person. They were communing with demons according to 1 Corinthians 10. They were defiling the flesh because they were uh, going to the prostitutes or the, the temple, temple prostitutes if they indeed had those in Corinth. The other thing is, if you just start reading the list of works of the flesh, and, and let's look at this flesh and spirit idea. Go to, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, and I want to show you that you can't divide these things up the, the way some people would like to. Galatians 5 talks about the works of the flesh. And, see, some of the terminology makes people think that the issue is anatomical. The flesh lusts against the spirit. So the flesh must be like the body, you know, and the spirit must be some other part of us that's more pristine. But here's what it says here. Verse 19. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality. Okay, that's something done in the body. Impurity, which probably covers both. Sensuality, fleshly. Idolatry, which is a religious activity. Sorcery, a religious activity or a spiritual activity. Enmities and strife and jealousy, things we do in our mind, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, things like this. Notice that even if we are tripartite, as, uh, which the, the issue is whether the soul and spirit can actually be separated. When, we get, when I get done with my lecture on this verse, Eric will answer that one for us because he he's a seminary student. He knows these things. <laughs> well, anyhow... Uh, but it, it, can you see that even if it were true, spirit, soul, and body, all those are fleshly. Do you see you have spiritual activities, mental activities, and bodily activities that are all called the flesh? So the error that you want to avoid is sort of the Gnostic idea that the material realm is bad and the spiritual realm is good. All right, one more phrase, no, two more phrases, and we're going to be able to discuss. Perfecting holiness. Perfecting holiness. This word, by the way, holiness, only used three times in the New Testament in this form, but of course the term holy is used many, many times. And it's hagiosune, 
And it's also used in Romans 1.4 and 1 Thessalonians 3.13. And then here, perfecting here means a completing or a fulfilling. And it's also used in 2 Corinthians 8, 6, and 11 uh, when it talks about an offering, that you complete the offering. So it means to com- come to completion in regard to holiness or to the intended goal and doing so in the fear of God. And here Paul discusses the fear of God in uh, Keith. Could you look up 2 Corinthians 5.11? 2 Corinthians 5.11. And so here we have uh, a mo- the motive for removing oneself from the temple cultus, from the pagan meals that are offered to demons, from the immorality that, by the way, we might think is shocking. You Christians think they can go practice fornication? Where do Christians get? Why would anybody think that? Well, as a matter of fact, it's not even blushed about sometimes in our own society and even in churches. But you need to remember that in their world, this wasn't even considered a vice. It was so prevalent that even married men had concubines and what have you, they didn't even think it was a vice. In fact, it was an act of worship in some of the pagan temples because that was their way of connecting to the goddess. You have, you see, the, the, the prostitute is a surrogate who stands in the place of the goddess in their perverted religion. So you see why Paul was so concerned about this? Oh, serious. Okay, what did it say in that verse? Can I, I'm going to read the verse ahead of it too. Yes. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Yep. We are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. Yep. So the point is to actually go and participate in these pagan things shows a lack of fear of God. And why do we need the fear of God? Here's why. Because judgment is future. People go do things that are, are seriously wrong, and they go, I didn't get caught. Nothing happened. Okay? No, lightning didn't come down and strike me. So we need the fear of God because the consequences are, you know, they're present. I mean, there's consequences for sin in this world, in this life. But a lot of times people, they're not dished out uniformly. Some people get by with things that other people don't. All right? But we have the fear of God, then we don't go there because we know that God is so seriously against it. Now, I have a couple of quotes. Let me pass out some verses so you can look them up. Because this verse, I, I know we've got a lot to talk about. I realize this, this verse is loaded with theological content. Okay, so Keith just did one. Psalm 119.9, Lois, Alice, uh, Psalm, uh, Isaiah 55 and verse 7, and Troy, uh, Ezekiel 18, 30 and 32, Joanne, 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 and 13. That's one of those verses that uses the word holiness that we have here. And then Dick, Titus 2, 11 to 14. And then I have some cross-references I want to consult. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Bringing holiness to its completion. Now, there's an already not yet going on here, I hope you realize, because holiness won't be perfected until the resurrection. 
But in the meantime, we have a goal to do, to do this. Okay, the first passage was Psalm 119, verse 9. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Now listen to God's word. This way. <laughs> okay, how does a young man cleanse his way? By listening to God's word. Absolutely. Did you know that the word of God has sanctifying power? Absolutely. Absolutely. It, 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 just being under the preaching of the word works internally in our souls, changing us. That's what I mean by means of grace. And the, the air that has crept into the bigger church is that what really changes people is therapy. All right? And so you have the therapeutic gospel. They don't think the, what Lois just read is true. The Word of God isn't going to change people. They just need some practical advice, some how-to. If you tell people how-to, then everything will be fine. And so the seminary is churning out therapists, not theologians. And so then you have churches that are loaded with pastors with degrees in one kind of counseling or another. And, oh, you got this problem, you go to this. you got this problem, you go to this. And you say, okay, try this, try that, change this, do this. But that's not how God changes young men's lives or old men's lives or women's lives or anybody else. You cleanse your way by your ways by the word. Lois read it, and it's true. Alice. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. There's a verse on repentance. That's absolutely a verse on repentance. Let the wicked man forsake his ways and turn to the Lord, and the Lord will pardon. That's the gospel that includes repentance. Now we have um, Ezekiel 18, 30 and 32. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions, so that the iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore repent and live. Wow. I was listening to MacArthur Wednesday from noon to... 1230 on KKMS, and he was, he was talking about repentance out of uh, John the Baptist preaching, and, and he had five points. Anybody else hear that? A bunch of people. It was good, wasn't it? He, he said, this is what repentance looks like. And then he just lays it out there, and then he says, but God is the one that grants it. We preach it, God grants it. That was, that was good, doc, good doctrine from MacArthur there, Which, as usual. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 and 13. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father in the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. That he may establish your hearts in holiness. Okay? And then Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the present hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. 
So God is at work purifying for himself a people. And so this perfecting holiness in the fear of God would mean that's what zealous for good deeds. We want God to change us. Uh, I got one more. I got a citation of a scholar or two here, and then we'll open it up. If, if, if we have a very complicated verse like this, write down your questions so when it comes time to discuss, you don't forget. This is from Barnett. He says, Paul's exhortation to cultic separation is based on the gracious actions of God arising from the, his promises now fulfilled. A principle that applies when God presses the demands of Christian living on his readers. Paul presses the demands of Christian living on his readers. Imperative rests on indicative. Ought upon is. That's a very good point. Barnett says imperative is, is rests on indicative. Why? What does he mean by that? Well, in, these are uh, tenses in the Greek. Indicative is, is talking about asserted. That means asserted by the writer to be true. That's the indicative mood. The imperative is ought. So the indicative says you are God's people. Right? You are sons and daughters. You are the Lord's. He bought you with a price. Indicative. The imperative. Therefore, you ought to perfect holiness in the fear of God. So it's not saying make yourself holy, and when you're good enough at it, you'll become God's people. That's a role reversal. Because you'll never know that you're God's people that way. It's the other way around. You are God's people, therefore. That's the therefore. This is the vocabulary, says uh, Barnett, this is the vocabulary of ritual and is entirely consistent with the thesis we are following, namely that Paul is here calling on his readers to separate themselves from the temple cults of Corinth. This is confirmed by his words from everything that contaminates, although the noun of defilement occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. The verb is to be found in the passage in the first letter where Paul speaks of the defilement of conscience through a believer's eating in an idol temple, 1 Corinthians 8, 7, and 10. The combination of cleanse and defilement appears to clinch the case that this whole passage is directed to the Corinthians' involvement in various Greco-Roman mystery cults of the region. The church is, uh, then he goes on, an incorporation of spirit-indwelled individuals, and is itself the temple of the living God. The church is the temple of the living God. And according to uh, his definition in the first letter, a church of God is a body sanctified in Christ Jesus whose members are called to be saints. By God's grace, the church enjoys this holy status in the eyes of God who is holy, a status, however, that it is to fulfill in obedience to the will of God. This, this it cannot do, however, since its members are unclean through their participation in the wickedness of idolatry through which they are in fellowship with Belial. That is a quote of Barnett. I now open the floor for discussion. <laughs> Keith is patient here. Well, I don't know if he was patient, but he did wait. <laughs> I haven't been accused of being patient very <laughs> No, I was just noticing that in Galatians, the deeds of the flesh, one of them, at least in my Bible in the note, says that uh, factions are heresies. So in Galatians, a heresy or a bad teaching is a deed of the flesh, even though there's nothing necessarily fleshly or action about it. It's something that happens in our minds and our mouths. Exactly. 
such a good point. A heresy is, is, a, is a deed of the flesh. Why? What's a heresy? The word for heresy in the Greek comes from the word choice. Choice. And a heresy is when God has revealed through his authoritative apostles and prophets what is true. God has revealed the truth through his mediators, Moses and Jesus, and the prophets and the apostles. Okay? And a heresy is a choice to believe something else. All right? I don't want to believe what God said. I want to believe something else. And there's a fleshly motive for wanting to believe something else. Yes. And it gets back to the Sola Scriptura thing that we're considering. There's a, a movement down in Kansas City called IHOP where they tolerate lots of interpretations. And any interpretation they'll accept and bless as long as it, say, it elevates Jesus in, in, what, in their opinion. So that the Bible then is stripped of its meaning and they're giving heresies. They're actually accepting heresies or accepting choice on a given verse because they think it's okay. Yeah. Is that a valid thing? That's, that's what a heresy is. It's choice. And uh, over here. It's, uh, let's just think about that. What we've done, let's just take the whole postmodern thing. I was still working on putting, I was working on my book, putting your corrections into it Saturday. So I was, uh, that chapter three, I think, is going to work pretty good. But anyhow, the whole postmodern thing, in a sense, institutionalizes heresy. Let me tell you why. Because what is being said by the postmodern theologians is everyone's truth is their own choice. What do you believe? What's true to you? What's true to me? It's always a choice. So in a sense, the only thing we have is heresy. In fact, I uh, read a book once that inspired me to write an article years ago. And the book, uh, it was either a chapter of the book or the title of the book, but there was a phrase in this book, it was a sociologist looking at how America thinks and works, and it was called the heretical imperative. The heretical imperative. Now, why did he say that? Because heresy means to choose. And, and so they're saying, everybody just go choose what you want. Choose who you believe. Choose who you serve. Choose whatever. No, nobody's allowed to have defined truth. And so we are in a perilous age in which everything becomes heresy because I have my truth, you have yours, and there are no boundaries. Yeah, and it's a work of the flesh. Yes, Larry. I think I read that same book by Paul Copine. That's your interpretation. (laughs) Uh, Now, my question was, and I have to be careful with this, is that when you mentioned imperative and uh, what was the other phrase? Indicative. Indicative. Uh, How close is that or how does that relate to in terms of hermeneutics of, uh, uh, I think, what Ryan mentioned is uh, what's described and prescribed because I think you, you oh, description you put, and prescription right how close do those terms line well, up with that a description yeah that's that's a good point a description would be something that is where it says this is the way it is okay um, and in the Bible you have to be careful the, the Bible may make a description especially in a narrative you may read in Acts descriptively 
the various people did this or that or the other thing. That's description. And if you're reading in Samuel, for instance, uh, which is narrative, you have descriptions. But the author gives hints by the words that he chooses and maybe also context, it's always context, as to whether what was done was a good thing or a bad thing. And then, so uh, you can find prescriptions within descriptions hermeneutically by determining whether the author thought it was a good thing or a bad thing. Let's give you an example. Uh, Ryan has written articles and preached sermons on Acts 2.42, where it says they, they fellowship around the apostles' teaching, breaking bread, prayer, fellowship, remember? And he, and he called it means of grace. And he was challenged by people who said, no, that's just descriptive. It's not prescriptive. All right? So then how do you answer that? Well, at the first level, you go right into Acts 2 and read the whole context and decide, is Luke telling us that's a good thing or a bad thing or a neutral thing? All right? I would say Luke sees it as a good thing. But beyond that, we have the epistles. And so what Ryan did to establish this doctrine was he went to Hebrews, he went to Titus, he went to um, Colossians and found the same list of things that are prescribed in prescriptive passages and therefore can affirm that the descriptive one was intended to say this is a good thing and we ought to also do it. You know, if the Bible says somebody repented and believed the gospel, that's descriptive, but it's also a good thing that should be prescriptive. Now, splitting the hair a little deeper, though, on that, in that definition, you do have some things that are unique and some things that are normative. Yes, not everything is normative. That's true. There are things that are true about the apostles that aren't true about us, okay? Because they were uniquely appointed by Christ, and they were authoritative apostles, and it's not true of us. And so that would not be normative. That's another word. Normative is something that is binding on all Christians and that we need to believe. There are things in Acts that aren't normative. For instance, they sold all of their goods and gave the proceeds to the apostles. I took that as normative one time, but it wasn't correct. And, and it's really not normative. Oh, yeah, the hankies. Yeah, they brought hankies to Paul. Okay, is that normative? Well, no, we don't have any proof that that was a, a means of grace or prescription. But Oral Roberts thinks it is. I, I have one. You got one of Oral's I, hankies? I, yeah, his, his handprint is printed on it. Oh, and it has that verse, and then you got them out, and you send out Oral hankies. Oral hankies. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. So you get the point. And I, I try to be a little, especially in the class here, I do some in my sermons, but I try to be a little transparent about the process of interpretation because that's part of how we learn. And so this is a good discussion, imperative or indicative or subjunctive. We talked about three moods in a, a three moods today. Indicative, asserted as being true by the author. Imperative, a command, do this. Subjunctive, it may or may not be true. There's uncertainty as to whether the case would be. But in that case, it, the subjunctive here had to do with let us. When it says let us is how we'd say it in the Greek, the subjunctive is I'm not sure you have done this, but it would be a good thing for you to do it. Uh, okay. Um, let's 
You know what? There's a paragraph break here, and there's a topic I want to talk about. We're going to leave our topics to the end. I, don't, I, want one, I got one follow-up statement to make after last week because I got an email, and I don't want to talk about this topic again. We discussed it enough, but I want to make my statement. And it's about schooling that we're talking about. Personally, I was not intending to say anything last week to suggest that the way some people are schooling their children is better or more preferable than the way some other people are. I'm making no such statement. All right? All I'm saying is it's between parents and the Lord and that they should use the best wisdom they have. But I'm not making a qualitative statement about that. So don't take anything that was said in general to imply that, at least, at least not to me, that that's what I'm thinking. Now, I'm not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about sola scriptura today. All right? Sola scriptura. Unless there's anything more on this verse. Any more questions on perfecting holiness in the fear of God? Okay. Sola scriptura. Have you heard that phrase before? What does it mean? All right. Now, here's why this, you're going to be hearing more about it because this is the topic. And I didn't dream that it would become the topic. First shot across the bow was I wrote an article for Christian Worldview Network about Christianity Today having a picture on the front and an article which shows people going back to digging up Catholic icons. And then the article says, Looking back to go forward, and Jan and I remember did a radio show a week ago on this, and it's actually saying it's good that we go back to the ancient Roman Catholic Church to find our beliefs and our practices. So I looked at that article and I immediately said, this is a refutation of Scripture alone, sola scriptura, because Scripture alone would give us boundaries And we can't just go anywhere to find our beliefs and our practices. We have to find them in the Bible. So I wrote an article pointing out the obvious that that the Christianity today had rejected Scripture alone. Just pointing out the obvious. Now, I don't read all the feedbacks of my articles. I just have to write another one. But some of you, Ben, I think you were telling me this, or or, uh, Jeremy. Yeah, Jeremy was telling me this, that the people that came on to, to write responses were rebuking me and saying, sola scriptura is not true. Okay, well that just proves my thesis. <laughs> I'm saying that evangelicals have rejected sola scriptura, and they come out and say, yes, we did. And shame on you for believing in it. Oh, it's shocking. And then, so I wrote it up, you know, the article, did you get the CAC in the mail, most everybody, on sola scriptura? Guess the emails I'm getting. People who were evangelical who have converted to Catholicism who email me and tell me why Sola Scriptura is false. And they say that because the church decided which books were canonical, the church speaks for God beyond Scripture. The church can speak for God many times in Scripture alone is false, and that's why we went back to Rome. And so then I wrote back rebuttals to what they said, and then they just want to debate it. They, want to, they absolutely don't get it. I, I wrote back and I said, wait a second. The, the, 
what are you claiming? Are you claiming that in some fourth century, a church council gathered and they said this, these, are, these books are from God on the grounds that we say that they are. That's the only criteria. If we're the church and we can say anything we want, and we'll say these books are from God, because we said so. Because God is inspiring us, not necessarily the authors who wrote the book. And so I wrote that to him, and he said, oh, no, I'm not claiming that. Well, then your whole argument is fallacious. Well, kind of, then, then the church didn't give us the Scripture. The Lord gave us the Scripture. Now, what was the criteria that they used to determine which books were inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore canonical and therefore binding? Well, the number one criteria above all else, and Ryan was teaching this Thursday night, by the way, was apostolic source. Did an known apostle either write the book or serve as the source material for the book. That was the key issue. And some of the books that were circulating, that some people thought maybe were scripture, like the Shepherd of Hermes, were rejected on the grounds that they couldn't link the material to any known apostle. And they were written later than the time of the apostles. Okay. Oh, that's right. You were going to. Is this right? Eric, you, you step in and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. Okay, I'm getting it. All right. <laughs> Eric's studying these things in seminary. And, uh, here's the deal. Uh, Paul's epistles immediately accepted. Paul was an apostle pointed by Jesus Christ. Therefore, he wrote, and what he wrote was Scripture, and what was extant was what the Lord had preserved for the church. The Gospels were readily accepted. John wrote one of them. Luke said that he got his material from eyewitnesses which would have been apostles. Mark, the early church believed, got his material from Peter, who was an apostle. And so these are accepted. And down the line, who wrote this? Who wrote this? Who wrote this? And the one book that almost didn't get in was, anybody know? Hebrews. And why did Hebrews almost not get in? Because nobody knew who wrote it, and you couldn't for sure link it to a known apostle. But Hebrews is in the canon because it's of its spiritual quality. It is indeed from God. Now, debating these Catholics, I haven't wrote my rebuttal to the latest one yet, but I'm going to write back and say, well, your guys, uh, if you claim the church did this out of their own authority... You guys goofed up because you let Hebrews in. Because if there's one book in the New Testament that rebukes the Catholic Church, it's Hebrews. <laughs> you should have been smart and kept it out. So why would the Catholics let Hebrews into the canon when it tells them that they're wrong? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, now, uh, now <laughs> You know, one of the issues here is, too, that we recognize that the church has merely recognized the canon and not determined it. And that's a huge distinction. The Catholics are teaching that the church has determined the canon. Protestants, what we're saying is, no, we merely recognized what God had provided for us. And one of the evidences of that is out of the Council of Trent, the Catholic Church, they define the apocryphal, the apocryphal books as part of the canon. And those are the Old Testament books that the Jews, they never had in their Bible. Yeah. And one of the evidences I always point to with Catholics is in uh, Matthew 23, um, Jesus talks about, he says, to the Pharisees, he says, you have spilled the blood of righteous Abel, 
to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. And the reason why that's so significant is because it shows the extent of the Old Testament canon. Abel, his blood was shed in the book of Genesis. Chronicles is where you see uh, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, uh-huh. him being murdered. Uh-huh. The Chronicles is the last book of the canon of the Old Testament. So by Jesus saying that... In, in the way they numbered them. In the, in the way yeah. they ordered yeah. it. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. In their ordering so, of it. So they have the exact same books we do, but the Chronicles was the last book. So ours is Malachi, theirs is Chronicles. The same material, it's just in different order. But what that shows is that the exact Old Testament canon that we have as Protestants is the same one that Jesus recognized. So therefore, the Council of Trent was in error when they recognized the apocryphal books because they're disagreeing with the canon that Jesus recognized. And so therefore, it gives us credence to say, no, the church merely recognized the canon. It didn't determine it. Exactly. And so then the argument, the next stage of the argument is this. Are they willing to argue that because the Jews gave us the Old Testament canon, that the synagogue has authority over the Bible? That's the same kind of argument the Catholics are making. Now, why do they want to get rid of or refute Scripture alone? Because if you have Scripture alone, then a huge bunch of these practices and beliefs go right out the window. All right? The mass goes out the window. The the uh, sinlessness of Mary goes out the window. The, uh, there's all kinds of doctrines that got to go out just be or deleted because they're not in the Scripture. Now, the apocryphal is not apocryphal is not Scripture, and it's manifestly not. It's ha- if you read it, there are errors in it. There are theological errors in it. There are things that disagree with what actually is canonical Scripture in the apocryphal, and it doesn't have the same quality. Just read it. It doesn't. Any reader can just see this is in Scripture. All right. Now, that's not the end of the world. Uh, the Catholics have been like this forever. What I'm really uh, energized about, and this is why I'm hopped up, is that there isn't anybody in... Where are the evangelicals that will stand up for this principle? Why? Here's what's happening. I just contacted Gary Gilly, and we're going to go to work on this. Gary is going to help us. When I wrote an article saying we've rejected Sola Scriptura, the response is, so what? All right. So now, here's the, here's the condition we're in. Saying that something was the formal principle of the Reformation doesn't impress evangelicals. They don't care. The Reformation holds no weight in the minds of modern Christians, or at least some of them. Now, so what we've got to do is we've got to go back to the very beginning, and refight the battle for Sola Scriptura for our own generation. All right? And so I wrote an email to Gary Gilley telling him what I'm telling you now. It just that I write about Sola Scriptura. The evangelicals on, say, nope, don't believe it, don't believe it. Got an email back from Gary. He's coming and speak here in November. We're going to do a conference. And he says, yes, I want to participate in that. And my next several articles are going to be along the same line. Okay, the various attacks against the authority of Scripture and the doctrine of Scripture alone. Why Scripture alone? Why not just Scripture? Because Trent says Scripture plus church tradition plus the decrees of council plus the Pope speaking at cathedra. All of that together is binding, not Scripture alone. Why do we say grace alone? Because if you say you believe in grace, the Catholic Church says, yeah, we believe in grace. Okay. And why do you say faith alone? Well, 
County Church said, we believe in having faith. In fact, weren't you saying, Jeremy, that they were wanting only Christ alone? Now, I don't know that that's one that the Catholic Church disputed. Unless they declare Mary a co-redemptrix, which some want to do, but they hadn't, they hadn't at the time of Trent, I don't know if they'd even dispute Christ alone. What do you know? Does anybody know? Okay, over here, uh, Lincoln. Uh, back in the Reformation, that was probably one of the le- more least contested ones. It seems more recently that Mary being a co-redemptrix is a more yeah. modern development. That's what I thought, too. So here we have evangelicals saying, no, all we want is Christ alone. And they're not doing any more than Council of Trent. So when I write an article that says the evangelicals are going back to Rome, my res- the response comes back, yeah, we are, and we're happy. So, Gary Gilley, in fact, Gary Gilley is, uh, has written some books on this, and so we're starting to plan now the conference, not November, but we need to fight the battle for Scripture alone. Now, it isn't just, I mean, it's really shocking that people reject it as a formal principle. It means we're no longer Protestant. But what all, there's another layer of problems beyond those who would be so brazen to say, I don't believe it. And the other layer of problems are people who give lip service to it but practice something else. And that's the seeker church. The seeker church says, Scripture alone. Scripture alone. Yeah, we'll put that in our statement of faith. And then you go to church week after week after week, and you get everything but Scripture. You get psychology, human wisdom, the latest political fad, uh, this, that, and everything else. So Scripture alone is only an idea. It's not a practice. How else is Scripture alone being attacked? Keith and I have been talking about this. This group that we're debating in Kansas City, practice the allegorical method of biblical interpretation. Keith, do you remember what he did with that parable? Yeah, just give a, this guy, Mike Bickle, took a parable and allegorized it for a whole hour. It was the parable of the virgins. Well, Bob gave me the CD. When I drove down to Chicago, I listened to it like five times. It's not a good, it wasn't good the first time. It got worse. <laughs> well, I, successive well times. every time he listened, I get another phone call. This stuff is wicked. This is such bad stuff. And he's driving to Chicago. Oh, this is wicked. All right. What did you hear on a CD? But what Mike Bickle did was to take the parable of the virgins with their oil and the lamps and five virgins that had oil and five virgins that didn't have oil and make it an allegory that all Christians are virgins and all those virgins are going to be saved and some have a, the, the oil is the hidden life with God and those are the hidden life with God that's good enough and that's valid get to come into the, the king and be part of the bride and we kind of the whole parable we're not quite sure what happens to the other one the way he was talking about it because he's looking at the entire Bible right now through the lens of the Song of Solomon and that he has this thing called the bridal paradigm and that's how he approached Jesus as a Shunammite maiden approached Solomon there because Mike Pickle says so. And that colors everything that they teach. It colors everything that they do. And they ends up with a very sensual Jesus that really isn't in the Bible. Okay. So when you take the allegorical method of biblical interpretation, what happens to Sola Scriptura? It becomes useless because the biblical author no longer determines the meaning. And this is, this is the hermeneutic of the postmodern. The reader determines the meaning. 
If the reader determines the meaning, why does it matter whether you're getting the meaning from the Bible or from a science fiction book? Okay? Because the Holy Spirit-inspired author no longer is binding you to anything. Because your mind is determining the meaning. And when you allegorize Scripture, and that's the problem with the allegorical method of Psalm applied to Song of Solomon. So there's no, is there any internal evidence within the song that would imply it's an allegory? No. Is there any external evidence elsewhere in Scripture that treats the song as an allegory? No. There's no internal evidence. There's no external evidence. And the only evidence the allegorists cite is that it couldn't be literal because God is unhappy with uh, human sexuality in marriage or something to that regard. That, what kind of an argument is that? And then again, that comes from the Catholic Church that thinks that people married are inferior to the celibate priesthood. Yeah, so now they're going to apply it to God. As, oh, it's terrible. Okay. Um, yes, what, what were you going to say, Catherine? What I was going to say is... Uh in regards to that parable that he was speaking about, the virgins and the lamps, that is somewhat true, but the mainly the purpose of that parable was to, get, to make you understand how you're supposed to keep yourself prepared because you never know when the, Jesus yeah. will return yeah. back exactly. uh, to get his own. So he, you have to have yourself equipped and be ready for when he comes. And be, you know, because <laughs> if not, you're going to get left behind. Okay. So, well, the main point of the parable is that we need to be ready because we don't know when the Lord returns. But in his allegory, what was the was the lamp your ministry? The lamp was the ministry, and the oil was your hidden life with Jesus. Okay. Yeah, the lamp was your ministry, and the oil was your hidden life with Jesus. So the whole thing was, if you have this big ministry, but you don't have this secret, sensual, in, it, in a hidden life with Jesus, he defines in sensual terms out of the Song of Solomon. Yeah, and he claims that your hidden life with Jesus... And until the church has this revelation of the bridal paradigm, Jesus can't come back. Yeah, so Jesus can't come back because we don't have this sensual understanding of Jesus in us. And so you have this hidden sensuality linked to spirituality. And do you see what I mean? Once you allegorize the anything, it can mean anything. I mean, your allegory is as good as my allegory. And so what we do, like we did this morning in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, is we're trying to know what did God say, right? And how do we determine what God said? By the context. What was going on in Corinth? What did Paul mean by perfecting holiness? What does it mean to have the fear of God? Now, who determines those things? We're not determining them because I'm here teaching or you're here prophesying or discussing or anything like that. It's de- the meanings determined by the author. Now, what would it mean to take this and apply it? Well, we're applying it in our discussion of Sola Scriptura. If we don't care what God said, we're not perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Because the fear of God starts, well, the passage Lois read, how does a young man cleanse his way? By clinging to the Word. But if we don't care what the Word says, we won't get sanctified. Okay. You know, it's really not, the real meaning isn't that difficult, is it? It's not confusing most of the time, but we need to have a hunger and a thirst for this. So you'll be hearing more about this Sola Scriptura. Gary Gilly says we, we should get some people together and write 
uh, our own version of evangelicals and Catholics together, only a rebuttal of it. <laughs> evangelicals and Catholics apart. <laughs> Something like that. So we'll see what comes of it. I, I appreciate Gilly. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for a good morning to open the Scriptures and to uh, think about our mutual salvation. Pray that you be with us at the church service, and may we worship you in spirit and in truth, and may our hearts be cleansed by a work of grace that comes through the means of grace. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.